The paper basically shows that if you analyze what we call the black presenting tweets that the IRA published on a per tweet basis, that those tweets were able to pull in more reactions, that is more retweets, more replies, and more likes than tweets of other assumed identities that the IRA uh, sort of took on. And so that is sort of a, a bit of a hidden finding because if you look at the overall numbers, accounts that were classified as conservative actually got more total reactions, but that's only because the volume of tweets uh, by conservative presenting accounts was that much higher. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 21st, 2020. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Dean Freeland, an associate professor at the University of North Carolina, Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Dean's work focuses on data science and political expression on social media, and we discussed research he conducted on tweets from the internet research agency Troll Farm and their attempts to influence U.S. politics, including around the 2016 election. In a recent article, Dean and his co-authors found that IRA tweets from accounts presenting themselves as Black Americans received particularly high engagement from other users on Twitter, which raises interesting questions about the interaction of race and disinformation. We also talked about what the data shows and whether the IRA actually succeeds in changing political beliefs, and just how many reporters quoted IRA trolls in their news reports without realizing it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 21st. Dean Freeland on why Black trolls matter. Professor Dean Freeland, thank you so much for joining us. So you're an associate professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, at their School of Media and Journalism. Just to start off, can you talk to us a bit about what you work on? Uh, yeah, I work in a lot of different areas, probably too many. Um, right now, I'm doing a lot of work on state-sponsored disinformation, and that's as uh, it's partly a part of my role as um, a researcher in the Center for, for Information, Technology, and Public Life. Uh, and so uh, that's been one of my major focus areas. And so uh, I've been, as I sent you, I sent uh, a number of studies that I've collaborated on uh, with other researchers on the Internet uh, Research Agency and uh, their propagandistic activities before, during, and after the 2016 election. Um, more broadly, I look at political communication, uh, mostly via the internet and social media. I do a lot of work that is methodological in nature. I write a lot of software and I maintain a lot of software. So I, I focus a lot on the uh, computational aspects of the analysis of this kind of data. So that's downloading and pre-processing and um, making sense of very, very large volumes of uh, digital data. Um, and the primary, primary application of that is to um, political communication generally and disinformation and state-sponsored disinformation more specifically, recently that is. Great. So let's jump right into some of the findings then um, that has, have resulted from that work. We'd like to talk to you first about some of your research on the role of race in disinformation campaigns. 
an early investigations, and I think people sort of maybe are broadly aware of this, that there was that black communities were especially targeted by the Russian uh, Internet Research Agency campaign in the 2016 US election, uh, for example. And you recently published with several co-authors an article analysing uh, that in more detail, titled, um, and this is a great title, by the way, uh, Black Trolls Matter, Racial and Ideological Asymmetries in Social Media Disinformation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your uh, analysis showed there? Uh, yes. So that study is, um, you know, a couple of years in the making. You know, we, we sort of iterated on it a couple of times uh, before we actually got to the findings that uh, you saw in the published version. Uh, the paper basically shows that if you analyze what we call the black presenting tweets that the IRA published on a per tweet basis, that those tweets were able to pull in more reactions, that is more retweets, more replies and more likes than tweets of other assumed identities that the IRA uh, sort of took on. And so that is sort of a, a bit of a hidden finding because if you look at the overall numbers, it turns out that accounts that were classified as conservative actually got more total reactions uh, by that, of course, meaning likes, um, replies and, and retweets. But that's only because the volume of tweets uh, by conservative presenting accounts was that much higher. And so even though the number, the absolute number of um, tweets by black presenting accounts was much lower, uh, when you uh, adjust the, the statistics to account for, you know, how it works on a per tweet basis, uh, you can really see that they really got a lot of bang for their buck, uh, the IRA that is in terms of when they posted posing as a, a black activist, because those tweets were able to elicit um, a large number of reactions. So part of what you talk about in that article is the practice of what you refer to as digital blackface. Can yep. you just explain to our listeners what that is? Sure. Uh, digital blackface is, I think, a more specific case of a general phenomenon of digital impersonation. And that is where someone simply claims to be someone that they are not uh, on the internet. And this is something that's very, very old. And so this predates uh, visual avatars. And so, you know, back in the day, you would simply just type that you were, you know, uh, a woman if you were a man or vice versa, or that you were black if you were white or vice versa. Um, now, of course, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated where you can simply uh, you know, find in, an image that looks like the identity that you're trying to portray and then put that on your social media feed with the intention that people will look at that and assume that you are of the identity that the image portrays. And so uh, digital blackface is simply an attempt to connect that tradition, specifically as applied to black people, with the older, much older tradition of blackface uh, in the United States, which is sort of white people presenting as black for entertainment purposes. Uh, of course, it's uh, you know, quite insulting and um, really problematic, uh, obviously very racist and something that is, uh, you know, pops up every now and again, you see like a frat party or something where it's like, oh, we're doing a ghetto party. And then you know, everybody sort of dresses like they're black. And so that was a thing um, that's happened several times and received a lot of deservedly uh, bad press. And so this essentially is the digital version of that. But of course, there can be many other sort of, you know, digital impersonations. But we, but I think uh, the, the focus on blackface is really, really important to connect that to the historical uh, uses of it. And the paper uh, that we worked on identifies a new disinformational uh, use of it that I don't think had been previously identified. So could you just unpack a little bit more what you were saying earlier about 
sort of the level of engagement or this as a proportion of the accounts. How important was race to the IRA campaign? Like, was it a factor, a minor factor, or was exploiting racial fault lines a really sort of central tactic of what they were doing here? Can you sort of try and place it in context a little bit uh, for the listeners? Uh, Sure. So it's actually a little bit hard to answer that question. And the reason is because if you look at the total number of tweets that the IRA put out by their um, black presenting accounts, it's actually a very small proportion. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's pretty small. It's in the, the low single digits in terms of the proportion of the total tweets that they put out. And so viewed from that perspective, it's hard to argue that it was a central portion of their strategy on Twitter, at least. So the study only covers Twitter. And so that's what, what I'm talking about. Now, if you look at it in terms of how those tweets were responded to, of course, the IRA doesn't have any control over that, right? So they, they put the tweets out there and people respond as they will. And so, in other words, this very small collection of tweets relative to the whole that were by Black presenting accounts ended up uh, yielding or eliciting a uh, disproportionately large number of the responses. Now, from a strategic perspective, uh, it's hard to sort of pin that on the IRA because they might not necessarily have known that in advance. They put a lot of stuff out there, right? They put out content that was conservative presenting. Uh, we identified um, accounts that were liberal or left-leaning that were not black presenting. They put out accounts that looked like news outlets and organizations. And so they really uh, had a lot of different strategies. And uh, the black presenting one on Twitter was not one that they really, uh, they had a lot of evidence of putting a lot of energy to on uh, into on the supply side, but uh, on the on the sort of reaction side, it really did uh, elicit a lot of attention. Now, there's other research that shows that um, on Facebook, for example, uh, the IRA spent a, a large amount of the money trying to target uh, Black people, and so the difference there is they were being targeted with uh, specific ads that were uh, looking at demographics, they were looking at geographic information, and the rest of that. Whereas on Twitter, they were putting out content. They also did this on Facebook. But um, on Twitter, as far as we know, they didn't really spend uh, very much, if any, money on the ad side. They uh, mostly, most of their Twitter activity uh, came from accounts that were designed to look like average everyday people, not paid advertisements. And so, uh, again, from a strategic perspective, I think you can see that a lot more on Facebook, where they were paying for those ads, and uh, much less so on Twitter, which is what we studied, where the accounts were designed to look like non-ads and where the total number or proportion of uh, Black presenting accounts and tweets was uh, very small relative to um, everything else that the IRA did. Yeah, I was fascinated by by your discovery that the the IRA accounts that were Black presenting received particularly high engagement. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily think that, you know, someone sitting in St. Petersburg who perhaps has never been to the United States would have a particularly good read on Black American culture in particular. So I'm I'm curious, why do you have any sense of why you think that content was so successful at getting engagement? Like, was it particularly convincing? Did it have the advantage of sort of playing on particularly painful cultural and historical divides? Um, I also wondered whether it might have something to do with the sort of phenomenon of Black Twitter as a particularly lively public square. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, sure. So I, I have to say at the outset that this is mostly speculation and the article did not address the reasons behind this. And I also want to say before I start that just because the Black presenting accounts uh, managed to garner a disproportionately high number 
of reactions, that doesn't necessarily mean that the people responding to them were black. And we do make this point in the paper. Uh, we did not look directly at the identities of the people that were responding to or interacting with these uh, tweets. Now, um, there is some evidence when you look at other papers that have studied this, that um, uh, a, a fair number of the folks that were responding to these black presenting tweets uh, were black, but that was not something we investigated directly in the paper. Now, as far as why these tweets were especially resonant, I can think of a few possible reasons. Uh, one is one that you mentioned, which is the black Twitter situation. Um, black people, black Americans specifically, are overrepresented on Twitter. Uh, it's been seen uh, at least partially as a, a black space, a space in which black culture can really flourish and influence other uh, dimensions of culture. And so I think in that respect, uh, being a place where there are already a lot of black people uh, probably contributed to the disproportionate uh, degree of uh, or number of responses that uh, the IRA's black uh, uh, presenting accounts received. So that being one factor. Another factor uh, that I think probably was part of it was the fact that, that um, and this probably is a, is a factor that um, would have affected some of the other ideological uh, identities that the IRA took on. And that's the fact that people really didn't see this coming, right? So I think, you know, you know if I can sort of uh, speak in my uh, authority as a Black person, I think uh, Black people in this country are very um, attuned to uh, attempts to, to sort of deceive and, and harm them uh, rhetorically, uh, as well as in other ways. But I think that this was something that was sort of outside of the imagination uh, of most uh, uh, Black people uh, at the time that it was being perpetrated. In other words, they weren't necessarily on the lookout for Russian infiltrators trying to get in on our conversation. So they didn't really see it coming. I think that's one major factor. Another factor is that if you look at a lot of what these accounts actually said, it was things that I think a lot of uh, 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 Black people would actually agree with. So a lot of the content was actually not political in nature. I'm thinking specifically about you know, a series of tweets that was simply about um, general, not very political, Black empowerment content. So one of the tweets in particular was about um, Compton's first Black uh, female mayor being elected to her second term in office, right? Sort of a uh, kind of congratulatory message uh, with respect to that. Another was about a, um, a young Black man who had been accepted to like eight Ivy League schools or something like this. And so not especially political, but very much in the tradition of sort of collective Black uplift and, you know, kind of minority encouragement, sort of the, the general ethos being, oh, the media doesn't typically try tell these kinds of stories, so we're trying to boost them up and make sure that everybody knows about them. So that sort of non-political stuff, uh, not even really all that divisive uh, in the way that uh, the IRA's activity is often portrayed. But I, And so I think especially when you look at that kind of content, it's not really the sort of thing that that not knowing about this state-sponsored disinformation campaign in advance that people would look at and say, okay, well, clearly somebody's trying to pull one over on me. So I think that those factors are, are some of the things that make me put the IRA's success in terms of uh, presenting as Black on Twitter uh, into context and help me, uh, or at least serve as plausible explanations for what, why they might have been so successful in doing so. So what do you think that recognizing the role of race in disinformation campaigns can tell us about how we need to think about responding to them or about counter disinformation efforts? Um, I guess to put it another way, what are we missing when we talk about disinformation if we're not talking about race as well? Uh, that's a really good question. So, you know, part of the reason I decided to work on this project was that a lot of the initial work on the IRA was uh, essentially race blind. There wasn't a lot of race-based work. In fact, the 
uh, classification scheme that I used in the paper was one that was initially developed by two researchers at Clemson University. And I, I don't mean to you know, disparage their work at all, but um, it was race blind. It really didn't have a, it didn't separate out uh, black presenting accounts from generically sort of left-leaning accounts. And our research shows that that really has a major consequence statistically uh, when you pull those apart and you see that the impact of being black presenting separate from being uh, left-leaning but not black presenting was pretty major. And so I think that, you know, just speaking in terms of the, the national context here in the United States, I think that uh, uh, researchers who don't, and people in general, who don't specifically focus on race or who aren't interested in it directly as part of their job or part of their identity, many times are uncomfortable talking about it. And I, I, one of the points that I really try to make, or that we really try to make in the paper, is that that discomfort really needs to be something that disinformation researchers need to get over. Because we demonstrate that race is something that plays a major factor in terms of the degree of response that these different accounts, uh, disinformation accounts, are able to, uh, to achieve. And that ignoring race or continuing to ignore race will uh, lead to uh, uh, incorrect conclusions. Right? And so if, if, if your job is to get it right or to figure out what is really going on when it comes to disinformation, um, then I think that a racial analysis is absolutely essential. And so have you, you mentioned that you, you know, you've been working on this study for a really long time. Have you seen any improvement in terms of willingness to tackle race as an aspect of disinformation over that period of time? Or are we sort of still facing an uphill climb from the same point as we were when you began? Well, I've seen some, some positive shifts. Um, you know, of course, the, the peer review cycle uh, means that these things come pretty slowly uh, because it takes a long time to submit your paper and to, to um, revise it and to, to get the final decision and, and for it to be published and all of the rest of that. Um, I have seen some indications that, that things are, are starting to turn around. I'm hoping that our paper will um, you know, play a major role in that going forward. Of course, it just came out a, few, uh, you know, a couple of months ago. Actually, last month, I think it was, that it was, it was accepted a couple of months ago. It came out last month. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, my hope is that that will continue to improve. Uh, you know, when you look at the strength of the empirical evidence that we present, we don't think that we're making, you know, a mountain out of a molehill here. We think it's really, you know, if you look at the effect sizes, they're pretty major. So this is not something where, okay, well, if you feel like you, you, you want to include it or you want to look at it, that's fine. Uh, we argue that it's a real necessity. Uh, and we hope that researchers will, will, will take our, uh, our um, recommendation to heart when they're looking at future you know, disinformation campaigns, whether they're state-sponsored or not, and also when international researchers are looking at uh, similar types of disinformation campaigns in other countries, uh, we recommend that they should look at, um, you know, other uh, uh, racial, ethnic, or other identity-based uh, conflicts that may be salient in those countries uh, to see whether disinformation agents are exploiting those as well. Yeah, thanks for making that point, because I know that certainly um, in, in, in the Australian context, that's obviously a big factor as well. Um, so I know you didn't write about this in, in your paper specifically on this yet, but maybe I, I've seen you write in other places um, sort of ideas around what social media platforms should be doing uh, other than just simply deleting disinformation when they find it. And I'm wondering whether you could speak a little bit a little bit more about sort of uh, what your thoughts are in that context and specifically how sort of thinking about the racial dynamics can inform the responses that we need to take. Sure. Um, you know, social media companies, I think, are probably the first line of defense against this. 
if you if you think about the data that we used in our paper, it was provided by Twitter, and they were able to identify uh, you know thousands of accounts that were controlled by the Internet Research Agency. And of course, they didn't reveal their methods for doing so. We can infer a lot about what those methods prob probably were, but you know one of their reasons for not uh, uh, specifically outlining and describing what those methods are is that these these sorts of things are are somewhat of an arms race, right? So in other words, you don't want to tell uh, the enemy, as it were, uh, what your tactics are, because that will make your tactics less effective uh, as far as um, detecting and suspending accounts that break um, the terms of service in that particular way. So um, one problem I, I, I sort of see with the, the um, you know, delete accounts silently approach is that people have no idea, in many cases, whether they have interacted with this kind of content. And so Twitter, uh, after having deleted a number of IRA accounts, did apparently, I, I, I didn't get one of these, but I think they actually sent out emails to people who uh, interacted with IRA content, but I actually don't think those emails uh, included people who simply viewed the content. You had to actually retweet or reply or like or something like that or follow an account. And so that leaves potentially a large number of people who may have seen this content in one context or another. Uh, but who may have been unaware of that. And so what I've advocated in other research papers is for uh, Twitter to do something like what they've done with content that they've said is uh, sensitive, right? So in other words, they put up a screen in front of it and say, this, this might be potentially sensitive, click here if you actually want to view this. And so rather than doing that with content that is sensitive, uh, so in other words, one step between leaving it alone on the one hand and deleting it entirely on the other hand is to put up a screen that says we have determined that this account is affiliated with a known state-sponsored entity that is attempting to sway politics in your country for the benefit of a foreign entity. That having been said, if you really want to see this, click on it and you can see what the content is. So rather than getting rid of it, you're basically drawing a circle around it and saying, we know who you are, we're identifying this and people who want to see this in context with everything else that surrounds it and who want to be able to identify this content as what it is will be allowed to do so, right? And I think, I, you know, again, I think Twitter probably should try to run some, some trials on this. In other words, I wouldn't deploy it without trying to sort of see how this would work in practice. But I think that's a good idea um, and a much better idea uh, than simply uh, deleting the content and then notifying people who have had certain types of interactions with it months late months after the fact, uh, because that would allow people to see that this this content is out there and it is attempting to influence people. And particularly when you think about the fact, and, and our, our paper really hammers on this point, that there are certain populations that are disproportionately vulnerable to disinformation attack. Those folks can then sort of talk amongst themselves about how they feel about you know being targeted uh, uh, by disinformation attacks and possibly find out, find um, or identify grassroots ways of defending themselves. And so, but they can't do that if they don't know that they're being attacked. And, and what I've suggested uh, in print and other publications uh, would be one uh, step toward doing that. That's a really interesting point about grassroots response. I mean, part of what this makes me think of, and I think Evelyn and I have quoted this to, to other uh, guests on the podcast before is a radio lab had a great episode about some of the Americans who were volunteered to attend, you know, IRA sponsored parades, you know, pro Trump rallies, that kind of thing. And radio lab tracked them down and said, you know, 
these these were Russians. You were working with Russians, and their response was kind of like, "Well, you know, I still believe what I was saying." And I, I mention this because um, I remember when Tumblr, the blogging platform, released a big tranche of information about. Russian-sponsored activity on its platform in the 2016 election, a lot of which was aimed toward Americans on the left, Black Americans. There was a similar kind of response among bloggers that people would look at it and say, you know, I, I still believe that, you know, the the U.S. government is out to harm me, that you shouldn't vote, that, you know, Black people are being taken care of by the government. And what was interesting was that part of the response to that seemed to be coming from a place of of distrust and suspicion toward the government to begin with because this information from Tumblr was released in coordination with the US government. And so <laughs> this is a little rambling, but I am curious whether you think that the sort of historical distrust in the um, black American community toward the government makes it harder to respond adequately to these kinds of alerts about disinformation when they're dumped like that? And whether, as you say, kind of in the moment, you know, pop up saying like, hey, you should know, might be more effective because they don't have that problem? Uh, it could be. Again, I, I think the jury is still out on this. Now, my suggestion along those lines is really an unproven one. And so uh, I, I, don't, I certainly don't mean to imply or to suggest that that's the end-all, be-all, or even that it's necessarily been tested. I do, what I do think we need is new ideas, and I think we need to do something different than what we've been doing. And so my suggestion or our suggestion, my co-author and I, is really an attempt to sort of provoke and to uh, push in the direction of thinking of new techniques to uh, inform and equip the public to defend themselves against disinformation attacks. Now, Specifically with respect to the black community, I think you need to, to uh, distinguish between uh, the sort of the mainstream and the fringes. So first of all, the first thing you have to understand is that the black mainstream, like most other mainstreams in, in America, is not especially interested in politics, right? So that's one area in which uh, you know probably most black people are similar to most Americans, which is they don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about politics outside of you know election years or, or other um, periods of heavy campaigning. Now. Among those who do pay attention to politics, I would venture to guess that only a very small minority of them um, espouse the kinds of uh, reactions to uh, oppression that you talk about, such as not voting or not trusting anything that the U.S. government says and other sorts of conspiratorial ideas. And so I, I suppose it's not too surprising to me that people that are sort of on the, on the extreme fringes of the left or the right uh, within the black community, and, and the black community has both on both the extremes on the left and the right, might not necessarily be too concerned about disinformation attack. Uh, I, I do think, and I hope this is true, that uh, most black people who you know think voting is a good idea and who you know generally you know understand that there are more than one large entity that might be out to harm them uh, might be. I hope that they would be a little bit concerned that uh, a foreign entity is attempting to target their uh, pet, you know, concerns and political preferences for uh, a benefit that is not their own. So, you know, again, I can't, and I would not presume to speak for, you know, uh, uh, Black people as a whole, uh, but I would hope that, uh, that most of them uh, would, uh, would be concerned about this. Now, I have heard what, you, what you're talking about, people saying, oh, well, uh, as long as they're on my side, you know, I don't really care about, you know, who, where it comes from. And so my reaction to that has been, 
uh, well, these people aren't on your side, right? So in other words, if they decide tomorrow that being really anti-Black is part of their uh, national interest, that they'll, then they'll do that, right? These people are not uh, ride or die, as they say. Uh, they are, uh, they're out for their own objectives, and you shouldn't trust them any more than you would trust you know, the U.S. government. And so uh, I think that's, really, that's something that's really, really important to remember. And I certainly, and the other thing I would say is just because they may happen to espouse an opinion that you also share, that doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's a good idea for them to, to, to engage in digital blackface and to present as though they were black. But I don't think there's any contradiction in those two positions at all. In other words, believing a certain thing and believing that it's wrong for people to misrepresent themselves as being like you for um, the benefit of a uh, foreign uh, country. You've also um, helped with some research into the effectiveness of the IRA's campaigns in actually changing political attitudes and behaviours, and um, you were recently a co-author on a study that found no evidence that people who interacted with IRA accounts online um, in a data set from late 2017 were impacted in their political attitudes and behaviours. And, and that might surprise some of our listeners, because as you note in that article, popular wisdom indicates that Russia's social media campaign exerted a profound influence on, um, on people. Uh, attitudes and behaviors. So can you explain a little bit what that study found? Uh, sure, yes. And so um, we, first of all, I want to say that I was only sort of a bit player on that study. I am familiar with the research, obviously being a, a co-author on it, but uh, but my uh, role in the actual research was somewhat limited to providing a bit of their data that they used for some of their, their, um, uh, their outcome variables. But uh, I will say that what they, uh, what we, uh, I should say, found and so methodologically, what we did was we looked at uh, survey results that were fielded in late 2017, and the survey participants were linked with their Twitter data. So they had their Twitter handles that they, that they gave to the, the researchers, which enabled um, us to reconstruct their Twitter feeds and what they might have seen based on who they were following. And so we were able to take a look and see who might have been exposed to IRA content without actually you know, determining that they, that they definitely would have. But if, for example, they were following somebody who mentioned an IRA uh, account or that was engaging with an IRA account, that was one of the outcome variables that was measured. And so what we found was that there was not significant opinion change uh, on specific issues or with regard to the opposite party. So the sample was Democrats and Republicans, and so their opinions of each other did not change uh, substantially. Now, one of the things that the paper does is it goes to great lengths to outline the limitations of the study, some of which include the fact that it focused primarily on a single period of a few weeks at, uh, in late 2017, uh, which of course was over a year after the uh, election of 2016. And so, you know, opinion changes that may have been, that may have occurred at that time earlier uh, would not have been measured by this study. The other issue is that it, uh, it measured you know, the influence that it measured was opinion change. So, and there are lots of ways that you can have an influence without changing somebody's opinion. For example, you can make them more extreme. Uh, you can sort of provoke them to do things that they might not have already uh, done that are in line with their opinions uh, that don't involve changing their opinions. And so those are two examples of, uh, in, you know, ways that the IRA could have had an influence uh, that were not measured in the study. But uh, the, and then the last thing I'll say is that the, the research, I think, is a very well done or constitutes a very well done media effects study. But if you look at the whole of media effects research, it turns, it turns out that it takes a lot to actually change someone's opinion using only media content. It's very rare that that actually happens. I think you know a lot of people think, oh, well, the media just kind of controls what we think, but people uh, pretty rarely change their opinions based on things that they see in the media. 
So in that respect, uh, the IRA's impact is actually very much in line with what we understand about how media effects work. So I, I love that you you say in the study that uh, one of the limitations of the analysis was that it was restricted to people who uh, use Twitter relatively frequently, that meaning at least three times a week. So mm-hmm. I, I hate to think how you would have to describe the frequency of my Twitter usage, <laughs> given that baseline. Um, I'm, so I'm curious, why do you think that the popular imagination about things like the effectiveness of the IRA campaigns and of, of media more broadly is is so out of step with the actual evidence of effects? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I somewhat ha- uh, hesitate to hazard a guess about that, but I, I can tell you that the idea of what we call the hypodermic needle theory of media effects is one that has to be going on 100 years old at this point. Right, so this is the idea that the media act as a hypodermic needle to inject ideas and opinions into people's brains, which they then accept wholesale. And that has really been shown to be manifestly false through uh, you know, almost a century uh, of research. There's been very little evidence, if any, uh, of this type of effect. But I do think that because it's the simplest type of effect and because it's an effect that is very easily observable when you're on the opposite side of the issue, that's being discussed. In other words, if you see the media talking about an issue in a way that you don't like, you know, uh, your assumption may be that this is going to have all sorts of bad effects uh, on people that are not like you. And so there's, a, there's actually a specific name for that effect. It's called the third person effect, where you believe that the media's effect is going to be a lot stronger on other people that are not you. And so the third person effect, I think, goes a long ways toward uh, explaining why people believe that the media have power, powerful effects that somehow they remain unconvinced by, but everybody else could be could be sort of duped by this. There's also another sort of effect called the, the hostile media effect, which is where people uh, see media as portraying issues and people and events that they care about substantially negatively. And they see people and individuals and uh, uh, ideas that they're opposed to being portrayed quite positively. And so that's just, that has to do with selective attention to the way that the media talk about and emphasize various issues. And so I think that these are a couple of, of sort of theoretically grounded explanations for why people might think that the media's effects are a lot stronger than they actually are. And then I guess, I guess the third reason um, is just sort of the, you know, uh, potentially nefarious, you know, uh, implications of Russia trying to inject themselves into the U.S. Uh, uh, election and the possibility that they may have some success, I think, is quite scary to people. And that may uh, sort of lead, lead them to believe that it actually uh, that, that, that Russia may have actually had some effects there. So you've also uh, worked on a study about the way that the media uh, can sort of fall prey to disinformation campaigns by including social media content from sources that turned out to be the IRA in news articles as as representatives of what's called the Vox Populi. So to start off, I think many of our listeners have probably come across an example of that quote in reading the news, but they may not be familiar with the phrase Vox Populi. Can you describe how those reporters were using IRA tweets? Sure. If, you, if you've ever seen a, an online news article, and this is exclusively an online phenomenon, almost exclusively at least, uh, and you see a, a social media message embedded within it, a tweet, an Instagram post, maybe a Facebook post. And so it could be a screenshot or it could be using the actual embedding you know, code that the, the site or the service provides. Uh, that's really what Vox Populi is, right? So you know, the, the sort of offline or, or a 20th century version of this is just like you know, the, the man or woman on the street quote 
In fact, the, the article itself sort of points out that, that it, uh, this technique originated with TV journalism, where you'd find a person on the street and ask them to get their opinion about whatever the issue was. And so now it's even easier, rather than having to walk around on a, on a busy street and find somebody to give uh, you their opinion, you can just uh, go to Twitter and find uh, an opinion uh, and just sort of embed that on your site. And so that's really what that's talking about. Great. So can you talk a little bit about what you found and in particular, how prevalent is the phenomenon of journalists picking up IRA tweets and sort of mistaking them for everyday people? And what kinds of news organisations fall prey to this? Is it kind of across the spectrum or is it particularly small, under-resourced outlets, for example? Um, right. Where is this occurring? Okay, so it was it was really across the board. So we looked at over 100 different uh, uh, news outlets, and uh, over 60% of them had at least one IRA embedded quote uh, over, the, uh, over the time period, which was over a year. And so uh, to me, that really demonstrates that this was not a problem that was exclusive to you know, fringe outlets or outlets that were highly ideologically motivated. You know, we found stuff from, from USA Today. You know, we found things from other outlets that, that, that your listeners will be uh, very familiar with. And so this is not a partisan problem. Um, it's sort of a, a journalistic practices uh, problem. And uh, in the in sort of the conclusion of the article, you know, we really do advocate for uh, journalists to be a lot more vigilant about the kind of content that they include. And so one of the recommendations that we make is that you, they should establish some kind of co uh, contact with the people that produce the tweets just to sort of, you know, get a baseline level of is this an actual person that's expressing an actual idea heartfelt and sincere idea. And I think that the evidence presented in the article really underscores why that's a good idea. And so, so yes, absolutely. I think that the, this is something that also reveals the importance of or the relevance of the IRA. So it's not just a, it becomes not just about the people that see IRA content on Twitter, but now when you've got it out there on news outlets, people who don't even have Twitter accounts can view this content. And obviously the news media being the main sort of bullhorns for public uh, affairs content out there, uh, this really indicates that the IRA's influence may have spread through the media much farther than it did on Twitter itself. Yeah, I, I found this study fascinating because as a, a journalist who's been writing about uh, the Russian investigation and disinformation, I've watched pretty carefully the, the debate that has raged over you know, whether journalists should be using Vox Populi tweets at all for exactly the reasons that you say that, you know, even you don't know who it is, even if perhaps you do get contact with them, they may not be who they say they are. And it, it strikes me, this paper strikes me as particularly interesting because um, we recently had a conversation on this podcast with Thomas Ridd, who uh, has argued that the Russian hacking and dumping campaign of the Clinton emails was much more effective as an influence campaign than the IRA campaign because it was sort of, it used the media as a vector. And what you seem to be suggesting here is that a social media influence campaign is in the same way. We don't know about what the effects were of this, but it can also use the media as a vector. And so media gatekeepers, as you're right, sort of really, really need to be careful um, about amplifying this kind of thing. Uh, yes, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and you know, in some ways, I think that uh, you know the the media, as I said before, I think the mediated effects of this could potentially be much greater than the sort of uh, Twitter only effects. In other words, people seeing content directly on Twitter versus seeing them, you know, on on news articles where you don't necessarily have to have an account to view it. You can just sort of go 
and click on it and just see that content. And also, I, it seems to be to be pretty remarkable that the IRA were able to get, you know, we found like 300 some instances where uh, uh, an article or 300 some articles that actually had included um, these tweets uh, by the IRA. And if you consider that, you know, most of these articles only included a few tweets or, even, or and some only one. And so when you consider, you know, that small number or the small number of tweets that an article would, would include out of the vast majority of tweets that are um, produced every day, the fact that uh, the IRA is able to get that, that many included in news articles is actually quite uh, remarkable. And so I think really underscores the success, if not measured in terms of efficacy, because that's a very hard to measure, as we've talked about, but at least in terms of getting other messengers or gatekeepers to carry their messages beyond the, uh, the gates of Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pretty startling finding. You mentioned at the top that um, you a lot of your work focuses on methodology as well. And so I was wondering if we could get you to talk a little bit about that. Can you talk about, first of all, how you conduct the research that you do for people who have absolutely no idea how this works? What's sort of the first step in deciding to do a study and how you get the data that you need? Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> I feel like this is going to be one of the most boring parts of the podcast, but uh, for those who are interested, I'm happy to talk about it. I, I love talking about it because uh, I'm a huge nerd at heart. But um, so with the disinformation content, we're actually pretty lucky because Twitter has opted to make a lot of the data that they have about specifically state-sponsored disinformation actors. They've chosen to make a lot of that data public. And so there's an archive that you can go to online and you can sort of uh, type your email address in, and they will give you um, all of the tweets that the IRA posted while you know uh, uh, before they were suspended. Now, the content is not available uh, directly on Twitter because they've taken it down, but they put it in the special archive, and they've got all the tweets. They even have all of the images and the videos that they also posted. Uh, but the issue is that the volume of this content is so great that it's very difficult to do anything with it unless you know how to do a little bit of computer programming. Uh, to be able to manipulate uh, large uh, sums of data. So, for example, the IRA produced some 9 million tweets over the span of 10 years. And so uh, to be able to make sense of that, uh, you know, there are some, some things you can do without coding. So, for example, you could, if you wanted to look at, say, the top 10, you know, most retweeted tweets, you could, I guess, talk about that. But if you want to get uh, into what uh, the different categories of users are saying from the ones that were the most popular to the ones that were less popular, and in particular, what distinguished the more popular ones from the less popular ones, um, you do need to do some coding to do that uh, due to the sheer volume of data. And so um, I've been working uh, in this area of data science and computational research methods for well over a decade at this point. And um, I write a lot of software to be able to uh, analyze this data, so to download it, to process it, to analyze it, and to visualize it. Um, and the results of that, of course, are, are in the papers that we've talked about. And I also put out a lot of my software on an open source basis so that other computational researchers can take advantage of that and apply them to their own projects and something that I you know, believe in very strongly. And so I, I, I put out some of that stuff. That I, the, the things that I feel like are most useful, I try to put those out. Uh, things I think are less useful or, or that might only been, have been useful for one project, I might not bother to go through all the steps I need to do to make that uh, public. But I do find that that's another um, nice sort of secondary output of my research in addition to the actual findings about the IRA and other groups, um, the software, or a lot of the software I use to be able to uh, reach those conclusions, I do make those publicly available on an open source basis. 
So one of the things that we've been talking about on this podcast a fair amount is the question of access to this data from various platforms and how that shapes and constrains research. So I'm curious, how what's your sense of sort of how much research in this space is hampered by the lack of access to platform data or shaped by what access is available? Like to, to what extent is your research driven by the data that you can get and what kind of data do you think that you're missing? Okay, that's a great question. So um, the platforms really differ uh, widely in terms of their policies uh, about how much data that they disclose, um, the form that it takes, who gets access to it, and and all of these things. So Twitter, uh, you know, we'll start with that example since that's what we've been talking about. So the data set that Twitter put out on the IRA, and they've also done this for other disinformation or other state-sponsored disinformation actors, uh, the data that they put out is uh, heavily redacted. So what they said was, in the data set on the IRA, they said any IRA account, any IRA identified account that has 5,000 or more followers, they're going to identify the account. If it has fewer than 5,000 followers, they're going to redact the identifying information, including the uh, screen name and the long name of the, of the user. And so what that ended up meaning was that in the... Um, data set that they offer publicly on the IRA, um, only a very small proportion, I can't remember the exact number, I think it's less than 10% of the IRA usernames were actually identified. And so they had a separate process that allowed you to fill out a very short application to get access to the unredacted data set. You had to explain what, you, what the research you were kind of trying to do and, uh, and how it worked and all of that. Um, I did that and I was able to get the fully unredacted data set. But, you know, of course, they were under no obligation to give that to me. They could have said, no, we don't like your uh, proposal or you know uh, anything else, they they really were not uh, under any obligation to to grant my my request. And the mere fact that they had an application process tells me that there were at least some applications that that, that they turned down. So e- even that said, I think that uh, Twitter's uh, process here is a lot better than some other uh, companies. You know, Facebook, for example, does not or has not as yet made um, uh, any disinformation content available. To the pub, to the, the public, or or to researchers. Well, some researchers they have, but they're they're under um, non-disclosure agreements, and they've had to apply for it, and they've had to go through certain channels. Um, and so, in the, in the disinformation space, uh, Facebook has not provided the same uh, type of data to Twitter, which makes studying face um, disinformation on Facebook very difficult because they also take down the content as soon as they detect it. Um, they have made other types of data available, uh, which is good, but as far as the study of disinformation goes. Twitter is going to be or has been making a lot more data available than Facebook has at this point. You know, there's a lot of data available on Reddit that can be uh, procured pretty easily. Uh, But again, uh, when these sites terms of service are violated by these kinds of state sponsored disinformation entities, the uh, the shelf life of that content basically is sort of a, a, you know, is really just a matter of time before it gets taken down in most cases. And when that happens, the, uh, there's really only a few options that researchers have. One is they can just sort of hope that the, um, you know, the companies will make the data available in some ways. They can also try to procure some of this data from the Internet Archive, you know, which will uh, you know, leave some of it up if it was prominent enough, even after the actual platform takes it down. If they happen to be collecting data on the topic before uh, the takedown happens, they can look back through their own archives to see if they happen to have um, collected some of this content by mistake. I actually did that when the IRA information uh, initially was revealed at the end of 2017 and found that I had some, but my data wasn't really complete enough to support a uh, full-fledged study. So I had to wait until Twitter decided to release the data 
uh, to be able to do the kind of study that I wanted to do. So, uh, you know, just to wrap up, I don't want to go on too long about this, but just to wrap up, I do think that um, cooperation with social media companies uh, helps researchers produce the best kind of research that they can. But, you, you know, there aren't any unified standards for, for how companies, uh, social media companies um, would or should do this. And um, there's also the question of the incentive for them. Why would they do this, right? Why would they spend their time doing this as opposed to anything else, especially if it doesn't materially affect the bottom line? So I don't have all the answers, but those are some of the issues. That's absolutely fascinating. And um, you don't have to worry, both we and our audience are all massive nerds. So that was um, super interesting. Thank you. And uh, I think it really sort of gets to something that's been a common theme here, which is that, you know, our policy responses need to be empirically informed if they're going to be effective. But at the moment, we're just really sort of still casting around for answers. And and this is one of the key pressure points, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. So, just to sort of wrap up, you've been studying um, political expression and, and digital media through, I think, what most people would think is one of the most transformative and disruptive periods um, in this space. And I'm just curious to get your thoughts on what you think sort of some of the biggest changes have been in how political communication works over the time that you've been studying it. Well, I mean, uh, one of the biggest changes for me, at least, has been the rise in prominence of social media. And this is something that scholars have been debating over since the 1990s, when the first studies came out of the first, you know, presidential websites in 1996. Uh, You know, obviously, they were much more, you know, much less technologically developed than the ones that we see today. And since that time, there have been lingering questions about efficacy. In 2000, there was a book that came out, you know, that was sort of called... uh, politics as usual, right? And so the idea behind the book was, you know, digital media sort of doesn't really change a whole lot. It sort of lets people do things maybe a little bit faster, maybe a bit more conveniently, but doesn't fundamentally change how politics is practiced. Um, you know, twenty that book came out in 2000. 20 years later, I think that we can conclusively say that digital media has occasioned, it doesn't sort of create change autonomously, but it has enabled massive changes to the way that, the, the ways in which politics are practiced in this country as well as in others. You know, you need to look no further than uh, Donald Trump's Twitter account to see how uh, presidential policy and uh, his sort of penchant for uh, eluding or evading the, the mainstream media uh, sort of plays out on a daily basis, right? You think about disinformation and memes and uh, targeted ads, all of which would have been impossible without uh, the advent of digital media and how that shifts, um, you know, uh, if not political opinions, then, you know, perhaps uh willingness or ability to vote on the margins. And we look at uh, how uh, during a contested election, you may not need to shift very large numbers of people to uh, uh, change uh, the outcome uh, from one direction to the other. And so, so, yeah, I do think that the rise in prominence of digital media is a major change. And I think that with each passing year, um, that becomes increasingly more difficult to deny. And I think that will continue uh, as we look to uh, 2020 and beyond. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Dean Freeland, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast wherever you listen, and thanks as always.